Welcome to the Color and Photography Podcast. Today, we're interviewing Brian Frank. He is a documentary photographer of mixed Caribbean descent, based in the Bay Area, who has worked on social documentary projects across the Americas, focusing on cultural identity, social inequality, violence, workers' rights, and the environment. In 2017, he was awarded a lifetime fellowship by the Catchlight Foundation to continue his work documenting mass incarceration's effect on minority communities. His two-year project, Downstream Death of the Colorado, is held in the permanent collection at the United States Library of Congress and was recognized by POYI with the Global Vision Award. He was awarded the Domestic News Picture Story of the Year by the National Press Photographers Association for his project on the drug war and culture of violence in Mexico, La Guerra Mexicana. From 2008 to 2014, his work appeared in the Wall Street Journal, and he has been published in Rolling Stone, The New Yorker, Harper's, The Atlantic, GQ, Esquire, Fortune, Newsweek, Time, Wired, Politico, PDN, American Photo, The New York Times, The San Francisco Chronicle, and many other publications. Currently, Frank is working with the Pulitzer Center for Crisis Reporting as a grantee doing workshops and classes on visual storytelling. Welcome, Brian. Thank you for having me. Good morning. Yeah, good morning. So why don't you let us all know how you got started in photography? Um, the way that I got started in photography was that, well, I actually, I, I, was studying, I was studying journalism first in San Diego at community college, and then I transferred to San Francisco State, and, but that was as a writer. I was... Um, I basically was, I was never good at school or I never wanted to be in school. And then, uh, I had some, I, I hit some, uh, bumps along the road of life and ended up actually, I while I was in a work furlough program, which I was basically court involved for first part of my life as a juvenile delinquent. And then that kind of lifestyle kept going as a, as a young man. And I, I ended up in a, in a program that let me out to go either to work or school. So for the first time I started taking classes and get doing good at school, but the classes that I really did well in were journalism. And that was because I could get kind of access at the street level to different types of folks that I think many of the other students couldn't get access to. So I started as, so I started kind of just writing those stories and it was more like just hanging out with people that I knew on the street. And then that was like one of the first times that I was getting like really good, like great feedback in a school environment. And that kind of changed my whole outlook on things with regards to education and school. And then um, in 2005, it was either 2005 or six, I forget the year. I think it was 05. It was when Hurricane Katrina happened. I had just transferred to San Francisco State and I ended up heading to heading to New Orleans because of all of the, basically I felt like it was this, it was really just a symbol for race relations in this country, what was going on there as the, as the hurricane kind of barreled through and people of color were just abandoned completely. And so I wanted to go there and write those stories. And this was like, right as the hurricane happened, you could just see it unraveling really quickly. So I jumped on a plane and went over there and it was much worse than anyone really expected. Cause I was, um, it was still very early when, when I got there and didn't know how bad it was going to be. And it was pretty dangerous on the ground in those first days. And, uh, so I ended up falling in with a group of, 
of basically other people of color because that was the folks that we kind of had to click up together to protect each other. And they were all photographers. And so I ended up getting kind of, I just, that was the first time that I started, started shooting as a form of storytelling as opposed to writing and that it was a more natural fit for me. And um, when I returned back after Katrina, which changed my, again, changed my whole point of view on things in this country, I got back to California and actually kind of little bit of just a random bit of good luck. The, the intern at the, for, at the Oakland Tribune didn't show up for his first day of work. And they called me and said, Hey, I heard you were with our guys at, at Katrina. You want to come in and show us some pictures? And I was like, I don't even have a portfolio. I'm a writer. They were like, just come in and let's, let's have a chat. And they gave me the internship as a wow. photographer at the paper. So that, so that was, a uh, that was, that was, that was when I became a photographer. Oh my God. So you were really just on the writing track until Katrina. Yep, I was. Um, I didn't really know anything about photography to that point other than I took, I basically had taken a photo one class at state. And um, again, it, it always felt like a much more natural thing to me. I was, I, even in my photo one assignments, I was, I did the same thing that I would do with a pen and paper. I would just go and hang out with people like in places that maybe, weren't that most other folks weren't comfortable and I just would and I, and I started just taking pictures instead of writing people's stories and didn't really know what I was doing and the but the the uh the teachers seemed to like the photographs a lot they were like oh look how you're using light here in composition I was like I don't know what I'm doing I'm just hanging out with this dude like all day um but I was getting but I was getting real moments and it was just a natural fit yeah and that was just uh, for me, path of least resistance to telling stories, which was what I was really mostly interested in. So you, did you, do you feel like photography was able to get your message across faster and more proficient than writing? Much more so. I just think that for whatever reason, that was the language I spoke. I just hadn't been exposed to it. Luckily school at that university level, like put this new tool in my hands and it just happened to be something that I think I had a gift for but yeah I, I could tell someone's story better with a photo than I could with a pen it was that it, it was uh that simple do you so, do you still apply writing to your work or has it just become full-on photography it's all photography I you know I think I have like written little bits here and there I think it applies like for instance especially not like uh with my criminal justice work when I was doing the criminal justice work is very personal to me because of my own past with the criminal justice system. And, you know, like um, for the first time in a long time recently, actually, I had a, I had an image that I had in that, in that project that, that I, that I want, that I just felt the need to write something about. And so I kind of literally sat down with a pen and paper and wrote almost like a, a handwritten caption, which was something that was very cathartic when it came to that image. And it was just, how I felt about the image and um, how it made me feel when I was making that picture. And that was the first time I had written in a little while, actually. And that, that was something that did feel good. And, and then in other way, in other ways, I guess uh, these days as a freelancer, I end up writing because a big, you know, a, a large percentage of the work that I do relies on grants. And so I, yeah. I have to sit down and write. And also I, I have to take the time to do that. So, yeah. So in that way, 
writing is still a part of my job, but I like to work with people who get as high on writing as I get on photography because they're, they're the ones that just do it better, you know? Yeah. So like, generally speaking, I like to work with folks that that's their jam, you know? Yeah. You're doing, are you applying for grants? Yeah. I mean, I think um, I have shifted in the last couple of years. I really, I was always hitting my head against this glass ceiling when I was just a straight assignment-based photographer. There's just never enough work, no matter what point I got to there's just not enough in the editorial space that I'm in. And so like the last couple of years, I have, I've just shifted my, almost like my business approach to where it's including other things like grants and teaching. And in that way, I've really freed myself up because there is, now that I've diversified that business model a little bit, it's made it so that I'm just less stressed out, which has made my photography better. It's made my my daily life better so like so yeah grants have to be a part of it um i mean if you're going to survive i think in the documentary space it's going to be something you have to do right now that's what the you know in the current climate it's just there's not enough assignment work from publications it's been like that for years yeah what um do you have any resources for grant writers out there like for photographers that are looking for to apply for grants like what helped you the most? Like, did you take a workshop or a book? You know, I think the main thing again is going to be, you know, also not being afraid to team up with people that are wordsmiths. I mean, I think, you know, I would recommend just like not letting your ego take over when it comes to grants. I mean, it's like, you have to, I think you sit down and you just like you would need your photos edited by a great editor. If you want to have a great photo essay, I mean, you need your words edited by, by someone who just does words. So like a lot of time, like the last grant that I worked on, you know, I sat down and I wrote an essay and then I worked and then I, I reached out to a writer I know who's just like specifically very knowledgeable about criminal justice and that was what my essay was about and he he edited that essay and made some tweaks which made it more um, digestible for for a larger audience and I think that really helped me in my application process Mm. so I mean the main thing that I would recommend is just like is teaming up I mean you know because even in you know with grants it's like as photographers, we are applying to grants, they're photo grants, and yet it's still words people that are yeah. picking who wins, you yeah. know? Um, you know, there's a photographer in the room, but like, there's probably, there's probably three or four writers in the room, you know, like, so it's like even photo grants, like, you know, photographer, <laughs> photographers have always been the 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 bastard stepchildren of the newsroom and it's like you know it's we're still looked at that way in the grant space too a lot of the times like even image-based grants so like so you know you need that word that words person to help you still like even if it's a photography grant one of the nice things about photojournalism is that like you you're like for instance you have these grants that you don't only have to apply to journalism grants right there's like art there's grants in the art world there's grants in the education space, there's grants in the journalism space, there's grants in all these spaces. So yeah, I mean, branching out from the journalism part is, is possible for us as photographers. I've, I've been applying to, yeah, other, other grants that are just straight up the art world too. Um, Because, you know, and then, then I think catering your grant to that, maybe learning a little bit of that other language, that art, that 
that the arts that the art grant world speaks versus the journalism grant world speaks like yeah. you kind of have to start versing yourselves in these different things to know what folks are looking for and kind of tweak your grants in t- to aim at at these different you know these different folks that are giving these grants out that's just kind of and and I'm still learning it as I go but I've definitely like found that you know figuring out this learning this other language is super important it really is its own thing um, I've worked with some, I've had like, I've been lucky to work with some folks that are, are just amazing individuals that also happen to operate in that grant space. Like that's like what they do for a living. And to see like, for instance, to take like an say an essay that I write about what I do and what I care about to put it in front of someone who just knows that grant world and have them like add like 10 words total to the essay. Right. But like, but they're like these 10 really important words that like grant folks are looking for. And you're like, well, it's not, it's not even that. I I mean, it's like, they're saying what I'm trying to say. I just, it's, they're just using vocabulary that I don't usually use. Like, and, but just that those little like tweaks because they know that world, like it's super important um, if you're going to like operate in that space. So to either like work with someone who knows that language or to learn that language yourself, you have to do one or the other. Right. Or both, basically. So I want to talk about your photography. Um, for me personally, I've seen a lot of photography on Cuba working as a portfolio reviewer. And I have to say your project, Cuba Libre, it has a perspective on uh-huh. the country I have yet to have seen. Like the moments that you captured felt like you were invited into their homes and you were able to capture moments normally withheld from like the average visitor with a camera. This you have it listed as commission. Mm-hmm. Did you have free reign to document, or were you given like a starting point or direction? So I've been there. I went there on a. I've been there on assignment. I think three times, and, and that's why I, that's why I consider it commissioned work. I was always on mm-hmm. a deadline. I always had a certain box to check with regards to what I was there to shoot, and so so that's why I considered that commissioned work. But. Um, I also, so I was, I I went there for the Wall Street Journal a few different times on a few different assignments. And so that's where, and then I have gradually edited that, edited that work into, you know, one essay that is more like how I see things. Did people just like let you in their homes? Did, did you know someone? Because it's, you're getting shots that I have never seen before. And um, I think that's like one of the best perspectives that I could could have seen on that country because normally people are like getting the streets you can see that people are limiting themselves by staying to public areas but you're like going in homes yeah i mean i think for me well so i do have i have some family ties Mm -hmm. to the island um and so that i think cubans like once you strike up a conversation with them which like cute first of all all cubans I mean, that I've ever met are just like, they want to talk. Like I have no problem like walking up to people in Havana and just like folks are so friendly and open and like are, especially if you're not from there, which they know (laughs) right away um, because, you know, it's just very, Cubans are so sharp on like knowing if you're from there or not, just based on small details of, because of the embargo, like, you know, the the type of sneakers you have on give you away like really quick. So like things like that, they know like you're not from there, but um Cubans were are like so in or, well first of all like you know everyone on the island is super educated and because they have universal education and healthcare etc folks are really smart and like want to talk politics etc so like 
um, me having some family ties to the island in the political space, um, you know, folks wanted to talk to me about that, like all the time. And so people would invite me into their homes pretty often. Um, my, my, my grandfather was a journalist. He was actually friends with Fidel Castro. Um, and he was a Bolivarian scholar. So that means he wrote about Bolivarian theory, Bolivarian revolution. Um, and his books were widely used and still are widely used in nations that are, that follow that theory, like Bolivia, Cuba, Venezuela, et cetera. Um, they use his books in school. And so, um, you know, when I was, every time I have visited uh, Cuba, it has, and I still have, I have a lot of cousins there, et cetera, family, extended family. So like, it does feel like um, it fits like an old glove in certain ways, um, just because of the family history. And, and folks also, I mean, I meet people that have, you know, read my grandfather's books, like, and they're, and it, it opens up like, it opens up doors. Definitely. Um, you know, folks are like intrigued by that. And someone that they read in high school and I'm like his, that I'm the, that, that I'm that author's grandson and I'm there working as a journalist too. It, it, so it, it leads to interesting interactions and experiences that maybe other folks don't have when they go mm-hmm. to the Island. Um, and yeah, I, I, but either way, like I also have just walked around Havana and just like, like walked, you know, basically walked into people's homes and had and had coffee with them, wow. people that I just meet because I'm just I just like doing that when I'm shooting, regardless of where I am. So like you know a lot of stuff like uh, in Havana, I've just you know literally wake up at crack of dawn and walking around and someone's drinking coffee and I'm like, hey, how's it going? Can I have some coffee with you? And they're like, sure. And you end up like in their wow. living room, you know, like so that's kind of. Um, how I work anyways, a lot of the time, especially when I'm doing street work, um, which I was doing there quite a bit. Um, so even though like a lot of my work starts, maybe starts on the street, I consider a lot of, I consider myself a street photographer. Um, I start on the street and then I, but usually end up in people's private intimate spaces. And I still consider that street photography because, because I'm, you know, maybe I met them on Mm -hmm. the street. Um, so that's kind of, yeah, that was kind of my, my process and you there. thought about doing uh street photography workshops is like those. yeah I, I would street photography is my I love I, I just love it um it's it's to me it's like this it's it's the most challenging and and rewarding and you can it allows you to just to just look for light and and nothing else sometimes and it allows you to explore down weird spaces that you wouldn't normally get to see. And that's that like super fun. And, and yet, yeah. And it's also so like, you, if you don't know specifically what you're looking for, that's yeah. a big challenge. So it's, so it's, so it's like very, very difficult yeah. and scary. Like, I mean, so like say you go uh, to uh, Havana on assignment, technically you're on, like, I'm, I'm there on assignment and yet I'm just basically going out and walking around. Like that's a scary thing. Cause I have to come yeah. back with pictures either way. Um, and I'm kind of just, I kind of just have a, 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 a thought, a feeling in my head that I'm trying to illustrate because of the assignment itself. And so that is like somewhat of a guiding light, but, you know, at the same time, um, every time I do it, it's scary. Cause I, cause you know, unless you're giving me a place to be at a certain time to go make photographs of a certain person, which is, you know, how most assignments are. 
if you're approaching it just from the street, um, it allows a lot of freedom, but it, but it, but it's also terrifying. Um, so yeah. And I would, I mean, yeah, I would love to do workshops on street photography. Uh, I think like, I think any, any workshop I do that, 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 that is a pro that's going to approach, um, process of how to shoot. I, I always kind of approach it from a street photographer angle anyways. So probably like anytime that I'm teaching folks about photography itself, it's almost like coming from that angle. Yeah. Either way. I think for like the average person, like that would probably take your workshop. The thought of going on to the street with the camera is the scary part. And like photographing mm-hmm. strangers is the scary part because these days you don't know if they're going to like, throw something at you or, or steal your camera, but like that you already have that comfort of like, you know, walking on the street and being able to capture what you see. Like, I think the scarier part is like actually just going out there. Well, so I've, I, I have found personally that, and, and I don't think this is an exaggeration nine times out of 10 when people are like, like we're, we're discussing that fear of approaching yeah. strangers, right? Like, and, and we're and that fear of just like pointing your camera at someone you don't know. Cause a lot of times I end up shoot photographing someone and then talking to them because I don't want to interrupt the moment I'm viewing and then like mess up the picture. So I end up like shooting the photo first and then coming up and striking up a conversation that happens very often. Nine times out of 10 back to what I was originally saying is nine times out of 10 folks, it, if you like that nine times out of 10 that I have that fear, um, it's totally, it's, it's totally misplaced and it's only my own fear not the yeah. subjects. Like most people, um, are very interested in having their story told and interested in the fact that you yeah. would care. Um, and it's rare that someone is like, get the hell out of here. What are you doing? Taking my photograph, leave me alone. That's wow. very rare. Um, most people like, even if they're a bit guarded at first, are still like, oh, like, why are you doing that? Oh, okay, you are you, you're interested in my look. You're interested in my story. You're interested in my life. You think I you think I'm different than all these other people around? Yeah, take my picture. Like most people are like that, but we have this like self censorship, and I I think something that I work have worked on um, a lot. I I used to do like a almost like a self imposed exercise of like. And I did this, I was riding on ambulances, actually taking photographs. And like, every time that I felt like scared to take a photo, I would make myself take that photo. That was basically the exercise. Um, And, you know, because I was like, that's my job. And, 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 you know, and again, 90% of the time, all of those times that I was scared to take the photo, it was just my own, my own hangups. And, and so, so gradually as I worked on that, that feeling of being, of, of, you know, of being scared of that, uh, how did you get onto ambulances? Were you on assignment? Like, how did, how do you do that as a freelance photographer? Like, so I, I, I actually went, I, I rode ambulances a lot when I was in Mexico city working on La Guerra Mexicana, like the drug war stuff. Um, the way that that happened was because I, that, they basically, I, I actually just wanted to do a story about ambulance drivers um, because my dad was an ambulance driver. And um, before I had my 
hangups with the with the criminal justice system. I wanted to be an ambulance driver, but then I ended up with a felony record, so I couldn't do it. Um, but so then I was like, well, I want to still like explore this world. And I actually had training already because I had done, I was an EMT and I had done um, a whole lot of work uh, already. I had done a fire science program and I had done like, I had ridden along a lot with my dad, like on the ambulance when I was a kid, cause I wanted to like learn how to do it. Um, and I was in Mexico city and, and I was like, well, I can't be a paramedic anymore because I'm because I messed that path up um, now I'm a photographer I still want to tell the story about paramedics and then as and then so I ended up uh, actually there was a neighborhood that I was teaching photography in that was like a pretty you know it's just known as like a more dangerous violent neighborhood in Mexico City on the outskirts and there was this little office that had a uh, uh, that where all the ambulance drivers basically was their office, like their little mm-hmm. base of operations. And I would just go down there in the morning um, and try to get access. And, and, you know, they literally told me to get lost like week after week after week. Um, but they got nicer about it each time. <laughs> I kept showing up and uh, eventually, eventually what the, the captain's secretary took a liking to me because she got she probably just got sick of telling me no. And I kept coming with a smile every morning, like super early, being like, hey, would you like coffee? You know, and uh, and eventually she's like, you're not a bad guy. And and uh, and she finally made the intro to the captain who I needed to know. Um, so it was just like really tenacity. I just stayed on top of it, even though uh-huh. I got told no. Um and then it turned out that the captain of that paramedic team, basically, he had actually come to the States like 10 years prior and had, and had, and knew my dad, my dad had taught him um, as part of a program, wow. yeah, like an inter-country oh, exchange. And so like, we figured this out that he knew who my dad, my dad is like this, like long haired hippie, like paramedic, like with a beard. He's like the only dude that looks like that in San Francisco that was a medic. And so, like, figured it out, he, like, pretty quick. And he was like, I know your dad. And then I was – and then after that, he was like, you can ride on our ambulances whenever you want. Just show up. Um, and having some medical training, though, really helped. Because, like, within, like, after the first ride-along, um, you know, I could help. I could help, like, here and there if I wasn't shooting. I mean, like, literally, it would be like, you know, keep pressure on this wound. We need an extra uh-huh. set of hands. I was like, cool, done. Like, like there was, uh, I, I, I knew how to handle myself in that space. And so the guys did not mind having me there. Um, they gave me a paramedic wow. coat at, at one point, just so that like the police wouldn't mess with me when we were coming on scene. Um, you know, and, and, and the fact that I was showing up and work and being there like crazy hours with them. I mean, I was, I would sleep at the barrack with them and until we got a call, I'd be there all night. So like, I think having, being in that shared space, um, they got, you know, they, they respected that I, that, that I wasn't just like parachuting in. Um, so that was, you know, that's the long answer. There's no like hip, there's no HIPAA rule that says that you can't photograph in an ambulance because you're in Mexico. Right. And I mean, like, you know, again, I'm, I'm never doing, see, you have to rely on the fact also that like. I am operating from a space from an ethical space because I did study ethics in journalism and I'm not taking photographs of people at like that don't want their photograph mm-hmm. taken. You know, like people that I photograph, even in those like crazy spaces, um, 
people tell me no in those spaces and I mm. put my camera down. Or if someone is totally inca- incapacitated and I'm there, I still have to get permission yeah. in some way. You know, there, there's like, unless they're in a public space, if they're in a public space and can be seen from public anyways, then I don't need the permission. I still try to operate in an ethical manner, but like, yeah. in private spaces, for instance, in the back of an ambulance, like, yeah, like the, the patient, the subject needs to be okay with it. Otherwise I'm not shooting it. So like, that's something that, you know, I think we have to rely on journalists that they have proper training. Like, like just because we're freelancers doesn't mean that we don't need to know this stuff. Have, have you come across freelancers who are who ignore that that ethical aspect to documentary photography? I think we all know that there's plenty of it's not just freelancers. Oh. <laughs> there's freelancers, staffers, photographers in general. Majority of photographers, photojournalists I know are very ethical mm-hmm. in their practice. There's always some that aren't. I mean, you know, there's people that have succeeded in the field by being very aggressive. And like, and having ethics not be the first thing they think about. Um, I mean, that's just like a fact. And yeah, you come across it. I think like, you know, I think there's been a shift in the past, you know, since I've gotten into journalism, it's like that stuff's getting called out. But you have generations where it wasn't getting called out. Where like the, where a lot of those folks who are very unethical rose to the Mm -hmm. highest levels in journalism, right? I mean, nowadays, I think I see it less, a lot less than even only 10 years ago. I think people just really frown on that type of mm-hmm. mentality. And also there's just more, I think, I think photographers have to cooperate more now because of the business environment. It's like, we have to help each other. There's no more newsroom. Yeah. There's no more like we social, like we have to like share our our social networks in order to succeed. So I think that has also led to, a shift in mentality because you know if you do something like people are gonna are gonna know about it quick like if you're if you're not ethical other other journalists could blow you up in two mm-hmm. seconds on facebook you know like so people there there's like built-in accountability now in in a lot of ways and i you know but it doesn't mean everyone's ethical um you know we see you still see things out mm-hmm. there but i think that i think in that regard things are getting better That's though good. I, I just thought I, I, the world that I'm in now is image syndication. So it's more entertainment based and many, many, many of them are not formally trained. And so they don't understand what ethics means. And I thought having a bachelor's in photojournalism, I always thought that documentary photographers, newspaper photographers were held to a different standard than the ones that I currently mm-hmm. deal with. But that's kind of sad to know that right. there are still some that don't follow the rules of common decency. Right. I mean, it's just like any photojournalists in general are alpha people. I mean, if they are, if they are like to the point where they are, you know, where what they want to do is stick a camera in someone's face yeah. for a living, it kind of like, has a certain it draws a certain crowd of people that are like very alpha right and i mean and in that type of crowd you're gonna have i think a higher percentage of people that maybe like don't follow the rules Mm -hmm. just generally and like and maybe like it it gets and i'm not some rule follower but i but i am someone who think who follows the rules about ethics a hundred percent i just think it's all we have you know like but yeah there's lots of rules I don't follow when 
police tell me I can't go in one area, I find the back door, you know, like that's, that's what makes it. So like, you know, you have those people that, that helps me succeed, but I've made a decision that all that matters at the end of the day is ethics. Like, because all the rest of it, it, you know, it's all that we have. When you come across moments where there is police involved, there's like this misconception to photographers that uh, they can arrest you. They can take away your camera. Uh, What has been in your experience and what, do you know as to be like the law? Well, they can do whatever they want to do, you know, whether or not it's legal or not is, you know, after the fact, after they already took your camera, yeah, maybe you get it back later. But rule number one is police can do whatever they want. I mean, like, even if you know the law, it doesn't matter. It's better to know it than not. But I mean, you know, I I know plenty, especially people of color, photographers of color. I mean, we hit barriers with police more than than white folks it's just because usually we're dealing with white cops and like and there's all that extra history wrapped up in it in every interaction that we have with police and so like you know i've seen this firsthand i can name several occasions when i'm the the sole photographer of color and i end up getting like barred while other white journalists are getting access to things okay like that's something that happens. Like you, you end up like, I can't tell you how many times it's like, I've had to lean on the the writer because all of a sudden I'm getting detained because I fit oh the profile. God. You know, I have long hair, I have tattoos, I'm Brown, you know? And like, and then the writer has to come literally bail me out. Like, like, Hey, no, 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 that, that guy's working with me. Like that happens oh all the time. And like, or even just with other photographers who are just like, shoot, they look rough like I do, like a yeah. lot of us photojournalists do, but they're white and they all, they get access. And even though neither of us has, maybe we don't either have a press pass and, and they get access. And then because I don't have a press pass, I can't go in. And I'm like, what about that guy? I'm literally with that guy. We wrote in together. He can go in. He doesn't have a press pass. I can't because I don't have a press pass, right? Like, because I'm a freelancer. So I don't have an official, any type of official yeah. pass sometimes. So like we, I run into this all the time. It's something that I deal with, you know, at least once a year (laughs) where I have a major issue where something happens based on race with, with police. And my first intro to that was, was in New Orleans. And it was, that was when I was the the very first time in the field working as a journalist and, and it's, and it's been going on my whole career. So, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I think like, I almost feel like, you know, in some ways, uh, yeah, I mean, we have, as people of color, like, as journalists of color, we have this, like, extra, mm-hmm. this extra barrier um, a lot of times, especially if there's some type of official gatekeeper involved, uh, like, like yeah. police. Um, That's frustrating. It is very frustrating. So with your project La Guerra Mexicana, you were, like, capturing the drug world. Like, what was that like? being so close to illegal activity and probably in dangerous situations. Did that, how did that affect you as just like a regular human being? Like, how do you, how do you deal with like moments like that after the fact or even during, during the moment to stay sane? I think first of all, it's not for everybody. I just, you know, I think like, I'm reasonably comfortable in some of those spaces because of because they're spaces that I know from my own past and I know the cues when things are getting out of hand and I'm and I'm very in tune to that especially on that street level 
I think that the thing that set that work apart in the, in when I completed it in like 07, 08 was that it was at the street level and folks hadn't seen that drug world at the street level at that point. And yeah, it's a dangerous world where shit is unpredictable. And I, I came across situations where my safety was definitely in danger, like multiple, multiple times. It happened all the time. The, I mean, and the thing that was really tiring was just that it got to a point where, you know, like every time that I was getting ready to go into that neighborhood, I would have to mentally prepare myself that I may not be coming out of that neighborhood. And that was like a really exhausting exercise in like saying goodbye, like to, you know, to family and friends and people and things I love because I had to do that because I just didn't really know what was going to happen when I would go in there. So like, that's the part that like, that made it so I wanted to yeah. wrap it up and finish the project. That's really an exhausting exercise to have to do consistently. I, I know some photographers who have who've sought out just therapy just to get it out of their system because of having to witness a lot of it. Do you mm-hmm. recommend that? So like, I, th- I don't know. I mean, yeah, I think that like, you know, it used to, it used to be for a long time that people doing this type of work got institutional help from their publications uh, with really? regards to mental health. <laughs> I don't remember I mean, that. <laughs> nowadays. Yeah. I mean, this is what yeah. I hear. I don't know it, but I, I mean, but I know that folks were working for newspapers and those newspapers kind of had a responsibility to yeah. take care of them. But now we're doing all this work on our own, but either way, uh, seeking out mental health, help is something that, you know, for, for me personally, the way, what that means is having a close network of other photojournalists who do the same kind of work and having them at very, you know, like for instance, just, we have like a, a a WhatsApp group, like a group of us that all work in the same field and we're all very close and we all have had the same experience, similar experiences. Um, and like, I can just hit them up in two seconds when I'm having a hard time, when I'm feeling down, like I'm in the field, shit's getting ugly. Like I just saw something jacked up that's really messed up. And I can just text, like, just like, even just like texting what I just saw and knowing that someone's reading it that understands, like is wow. very helpful. And like, sometimes the group is like, Hey, you need to mm-hmm. take a break. <laughs> like this is a three of you texting us some really messed up stuff. Like, why don't you go take a day off? And like, yeah. you know, like, and, and I just like need to hear that at that point. Like, or, hey, this is, I've been through something similar. This is how I dealt with it. Like, so that's the way I deal with it is having that network close at hand of folks yeah. that understand. Um, but you have to like yeah. actively seek that out because yeah, otherwise you're doing it all Yeah, that's around. never a good idea. So the project Death of the Colorado, can you, can you talk about that yeah. a little bit more, explain what it's about and, and um, how it impacted you like after it was finished? Yeah, so the the project Death of the Colorado was something I took on, um, worked on for about two or two and a half years, really long term project. It was something that I came across when I was, again, I was teaching in a community on the border. A lot, some of the stories, a lot of the stories that I ended up really interested in started with me just like teaching a workshop somewhere. I just noticed that the river used to run through the community that where I was teaching, and now it was just a dried up riverbed. So I ended up wanting to do a story about that and what is it, how does it affect the culture when the water disappears? So 
that turned into a big rabbit hole that led me, you know, for two over two years of my life that I just like had to keep telling the story and try to finish the story. And also it turned into, you know, something where I wanted to, the story I did before about the drug war was something where I, it just kind of fell in my lap. I, I had been spending time with the medics and then the drug war just like got really violent while I was there. So it wasn't like I conceived it from beginning to end. And I wanted to prove to myself that I could conceive a story like from beginning to, and see it through to the end. And that was what that river story was about. And so I totally self-funded it. I, I would like basically I, as I traveled, I had several editors who supported me by giving me assignments basically. And I would tell them, Hey, I'm going to be in Vegas for two weeks because there's this thing I want to photograph for my story. And I would keep them in the loop and they felt like they were a part of the story in that way. And then they would say, cool, like I got this portrait to shoot out here. And, and like, in that way I was able to bounce around and shoot the story. And I lived like that for wow. like two years, which pretty much like, I had to be willing to live in really crappy motels. I had to be willing to eat crappy. I had to be willing to live on like a no budget. I was driving, a, I remember I was driving a thousand dollar like crap, like truck that I bought at an auction and like every penny was going into the project. And like at the end of that, like a lot of my personal relationships had fallen apart. And that was, so I learned that that was not, the healthiest way to approach a story you know it was it was like personal relationships were in the gutter uh i was like 40 pounds overweight <laughs> from like eating 99 wow. cent burgers like I, it, I was a hot mess when i got done with that project and i was like this is not the way to live and so you know at that time in my life and in my career it was important for me to do that story but it probably shaved years off my life doing it that way and i won't do it like that again and that project ended up in the United States Library of Congress. Like, what is that? And like, can the public see it? How does that even happen? You know, I've never gone to see it at the, at the library itself. They, they bought a collection of images. Um, they basically brought, bought a selection of prints from me, which uh -huh. are now archived. So it's like part of historical records. So I, so you can go in there and go look. I think that they, they basically, they're out there searching for work that is of historical significance mm -hmm. all the time. And, and they came across my work mm -hmm. at some point and thought that it fit what they were looking for. So they ended up purchasing a bunch of prints from me, which was like a real honor because it's just now it's, it feels like it's part of the yeah. history of the country. Yeah. It's in like one of the greatest libraries yeah. in, the, in the world. What, um, what happened with the death of Colorado? Did it, did it bring more awareness? Did it cause any change? You know, I, I, I don't know. It's one of those things where it's like I, in, in the photojournalism world, I feel like everyone saw the work. Um, and so that was great for me and my career. It was not fulfilling in the way that like I hoped it would be. I mean, just getting that work published was like impossible. Um, you know, it was like, it was published in photo magazines. It was published in uh, trade magazines. And, but like, as far as published to the broader public, it was, it was always, you know, again, we're always butting up against this thing of, of like, everything is words driven. So like, you know, what we do is seen as second to what writers do. And so 
you know, you approach editors at magazines and unless like, unless it's coming from a writer, it's just kind of, it's not as important. So I could do a project for two years with the camera and a writer, but unless there's a writer who has shown up for three days and written something about it, it doesn't really matter, you know? Um, and, and I, and that's because there's writers making all the decisions. I mean, if there were, if there were visuals, people that were higher up at publications, that wouldn't be the case, but you know, that's, that's how the business works. So, and that hasn't changed. And, you know, and, and, you know, it's funny because visuals are more important than ever, but like, you know, you still have all the words, people making all the decisions and, you know, the publications that are doing well are the ones that have pushed visuals forward. And yet these other publications that are suffering still have the same old dinosaurs making all the same old decisions based on words and they don't get it, you know? And so like, this is kind of the, the fight. That we yeah, all and it's ironic that that words are held in such higher esteem because every time I read a story and I have read them at the LA Times is one of them where there's grammatical errors and it's like if if the, if the words were so much so important then why wouldn't you have someone copy at it all those mistakes and it's it's not even it, oh, totally. the on, I know the online version is an abridged version of what a print version could have been like there's they write differently now they write for the internet they don't write for print and there's less respect in editing and the the copy editor is the first person that gets um their job cut which and it's totally yeah and i mean that's one of the that's one of the problems you're talking you're seeing the results of is that the copy editors have all been cut right and, yeah. and the photographers yeah. have been cut. <laughs> and so, I mean, and the reporters are supposed to take pictures now too, like in some of the smaller newspapers that, yeah, or maybe even just like one step below, like the mainstream publications. Like, you have to be able to shoot, edit yeah, video, I mean, and write because they can't afford three different people. Right, and it's a ridiculous concept because you, it, it's it's ridiculous. It's just as ridiculous for a, for a writer to be exp- to to think that a writer is going to shoot the photos is is just as ridiculous as thinking I'm going to write the story. And yet they think that they think lesser of image making. They think that people mm-hmm. that anyone can do it, and so a writer can do it. Right? I mean, like, but a writer will tell you they can't. But I mean, but but for some reason. <laughs> The higher yeah. ups think they can. Yeah, because their kids have cell phones. They think anyone can take a picture. Yeah, they just think you have a camera so you can take a picture. Well, I have yeah. a pen doesn't mean I can write a story. But but for some reason, that's, yeah. the, that's the perception. Can you talk a little bit about the Catchlight Foundation and your work with them? Yeah, Catchlight has been amazing across the board. They are an organization up here in the Bay Area that are... They're seeking to kind of amplify the voices of visual storytellers, but also and also amplify the the impact that visual storytellers stories have. So, and that that's a broad statement, but it is what they're trying to do. So, you know, they they do that in a lot of ways. I think that one of the big ways that they're different is that you know, for for one thing, they give out grants, so they put their money where their mouth is, but. They don't just give out grants. They also then really support you as a storyteller in whatever way that you need during your grant period. And and also build a community so that like after your grant period is technically up, you still have them to lean on. And, you know, I think that that's pretty unique in my experience. And so, you know, I, I got a grant with them a couple of years ago now, but but they're very happy to still 
kind of like help me out here and there when I need it. It's it's kind of become a, again, we don't have newsrooms these days. So it's nice to have this like this other community with people that have other skills that are there for me to lean on a little bit. If I want to do a workshop, you know, for instance, you know, I work, I try to work with them because like they have folks that are just like good at logistics and like, there's things that I need to focus on with regards to teaching. I can't handle all the logistics, you know, like things of that along. It's just nice to have that, that, uh, that community to lean on for sure. So they're kind of, that's what they do. They, they give out now they're up to four major grants a year for four fellows. And then they're also branching out into to doing these more community level grants, which are still a good amount of money where they partner you with the local paper to do a story. So like they have all these smaller grants for, for visual storytellers, and then they have their bigger fellowships wow, that they give out too. Great. Um, so earlier we heard audio of your little boy. Can you talk about how your, your career <laughs> has changed with becoming a parent? Yeah, um, it's changed a lot in the beginning. So I have a two-year-old boy and when he was on the way, I basically was in the middle of working on, I, I ended up at a juvenile prison with my camera for an assignment and I had a little boy on the way and I was, and you know, sitting there just realizing that I had all new perspective before he was even in the world because I was like thinking about how my actions had affected my family you know, when I was one of those juveniles that was incarcerated and how that must have felt because I was already in love with this little boy before he was even born. And so, you know, I was already sitting there thinking like, oh my God, I hope that my boy doesn't end up doing the stuff that I did to end up in a place like all these boys I'm photographing. And he wasn't even in the world yet. So like having that awakening to, to new emotions and feelings was probably the number one thing the first thing that happened. And that made me a better photographer for one. I can kind of, now as a parent, I can speak with other parents on a level I couldn't before. And so like, you know, I can be photographing them. The most awful example is photographing someone who has lost a child. I mean, I ran into that pretty early on working on a violence project in Mexico. And I'm working with the mom who lost her daughter um, to this, to this drug violence. And like, I mean, speaking with her as a parent, really seeing her as a mother and understanding what she's going through on a level that I wouldn't be able to understand if, if I didn't have a child was something that made my photography more sensitive. And so, yeah, for me, it def, you know, it changed, it changed my perspective and then changed. So that in turn changed my visual voice wow. as well. I do want to talk about the Pulitzer Center and the kind of work that you do with them. How did you become involved mm -hmm. with them? I became involved with the Pulitzer Center through my connection with Catchlight, Catchlight, you know, is, I think, I think a lot of these organizations in the nonprofit space, you know, it's a very small world, just like how journalism is a small world. And so some of the other fellows were already working with the Pulitzer Center. And in that way, an introduction was made. I don't remember exactly how, but I already was doing educational work on my own for years. And Pulitzer Center has a whole wing of what they do that is based on that is education, and so it was just a very natural fit. They they ended up funding a workshop that I did for formerly incarcerated students at at my alma mater at San Francisco State, and and then after that continued the relationship to where they have me teaching. And right now it's Chicago, so we're doing a lot of wow. stuff in Chicago. 
We're doing workshops in inside of juvenile facilities where we, we're teaching storytelling, visual storytelling. And then we're going to high schools and universities, working both with showing educators, showing them kind of what it is that I do, because I teach with a visual language and there's, and there's some students that just learn better that way. And so, so yeah, we've been doing a lot of work all over Chicago. I've been there a bunch this, this year, and it's, I think, hopefully just going to keep evolving and, and going. And, you know, there's these, there's places where we go to teach that if you just go in there with a bunch of graphs and like facts, like these kids yeah. don't give a rats, you know, they, they just are like, who are you? You're some other person coming from the outside. Whereas I go in there and I go like, first of all, I'm showing you pictures, which automatically like a lot of these kids are, get and like, they're, they already speak a visual language because they're on Instagram all day and everything they're doing is looking at, is looking at pictures already. But, you know, I also look like they do. I'm, and I'm showing them pictures of people that look like they do. And then I'm explaining to them that I come from a similar background myself and had like, and I get it, like I get the violence that they're seeing and like thing. And so that, and, and I'm showing them pictures, not just like throwing them things to, you know, from some outside world, I'm showing them photographs that are relatable to to their experience and like and then also and then dropping a few facts while we're while we're in discussion about you know about the criminal justice system about mass incarceration and at that point they don't even you know like I they're already hooked by the images so that's kind of like what we're doing Sounds in a awesome. nutshell yeah it's been great I love it it's a whole nother aspect to my career that I didn't foresee but I um, it's a natural fit and it's something that it's, it's very challenging. It's super hard work to teach. It's, it's incredibly difficult and exhausting and incredibly rewarding at the same time. So, so, you know, I like having it as another aspect to what it is that I do. So I'm not just focusing on photography itself and just mm -hmm. focusing on getting assignments. It can be a relief sometimes to do yeah. something a little different, you know? So last question. It's a fun one. Um, who on Instagram are you currently um, excited about? Or you're like, you like, they, you follow that you want to share? Oh, good question. Darn, I'm trying to think. Who have I, who have I really been following a bunch? So I've been, so first and foremost, I've been trying to disconnect yeah. from social media lately. I found it was yeah. getting me really depressed. I, I reached out yeah. to my network of other photojournalists and was like, dude, I can't handle this. Like seeing all this stuff about basically, you know, the immigration stuff that was going on yeah. was freaking me out and I couldn't handle the constant barrage of media. So I kind of have been disconnecting from social media more than anything. I deleted Facebook off my phone. That was a really healthy move. That felt really good. And but I am still on Instagram and I do enjoy Instagram. I think that like I mean, I'm following so many different folks. I'm trying to think like who it is that stands out to me right now. I I I think like one of the things I like about it, well one of the things that has changed is that like all these folks that used to be like I, I saw Instagram as this space where uh -huh. I could put like family pictures and that was like actually something that was relieving for me because I was, it didn't have to be so professional, but now it's transformed into this space that we just post our professional work. But I like it when, I still like it when people who I really respect and love and love their work still post mm -hmm. personal stuff every once in a while. Yeah. I mean, I, I generally 
I'm following, I mean, the people who I get excited about are like a lot of my friends, like Kirsten Luce makes beautiful work along the border and she's doing a lot of like animal, animal well-being stuff right now for Nat Geo. So I'm always psyched whenever I see it. Same with Dominic Bracco. Same thing. He's just like, does like great stuff along the border. So I'm always excited to see the work. And then it's nice that you can see like the evolution of someone's work, like Megan Dollywall. Like I've watched her work just get so incredible over the last couple of years. I think she was like, she was someone who was doing work with Pulitzer. And I think she was doing a lot of different types of journalism. And then like now her photography has just gotten to this like next level of like sensitive storytelling. So like, it's cool that you can see that progression, you know, because she's been posting that work for years. Good question. I can look. So it's her last name is D H A L I W A L. Megan Dollywall. Yeah. And these are the same folks that I like, again, like lean on for like my emotional support. So that's why this is why these are the first names that are coming into my head. It's like I love their work, respect their work. And they like, and so I'm excited to see their work all the time. And I have one for yeah, you. Yeah, those that are the first like, people to come to um, mind. Color uh-huh. Al Mexicana. So it's color A L A Mexicana. And it's 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 very well curated. It's it's and it's some of it's from photographers, some of it's just like people from uh South America. But it's it's a fun it's uh-huh. a it's a fun feed, you know, it's got some beautiful moments in it. Oh, and you know who else I thought of just now too is this other cat that I just met, Juan Pablo Ampudia, I'm probably saying his last name wrong, Mexico-based journalist. And I think he like literally has made his career off of Instagram. Now he's like on the radar, but just like making really intimate work out of Latin America. Spell his, wait, say his last name again. His last name is A-M, A-M-P-U-D-I-A. He's someone who my understanding is that he wasn't like, he was just kind of like doing this work on his own. And I think he ended up hooking up with Nat Geo just based on his Instagram feed because his Instagram feed was so good. And then, yeah, then I met him and he's like such a sensitive dude and his work is like beautiful. And it's like, yeah, totally off of Instagram, which is a trip. Well, our time is up. So thank you very much for sitting down and talking with me. Can you let everyone know where they can find your work and follow you and all that stuff? Yeah. Um, My work is, you can see, although I don't update it nearly as much as I should. Uh, my website's brianfrankphoto.com, B-R-I-A-N-F-R-A-N-K, photo.com. And um, yeah, I mean, I other than that, doing a long-term storytelling workshop coming up next month and with some other storytellers and people from Catchlight. So there's always that as an opportunity to come out and kind of uh, maybe learn some, some things about long-term, long-form storytelling. And also distribution models, et cetera, like how to get this work out there. That's what we're going to do a lot of. And yeah, other than that, I'm on Instagram at Brian L. Frank. I always use my middle initial in my byline. So it's so that's my Instagram is with the middle initial. Great. Well, hopefully I get back to your little boy and have a great morning. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for sure. I appreciate your time. Thanks. Bye. Goodbye. Have a good one. Thank you for listening to this episode of Color and Photography. 
follow us on Instagram at Color and Photography to see some of the images we refer to in this podcast. And of course, subscribe so you don't miss our upcoming episodes and interviews on the diversity and uniqueness of photography from the past and the present. This podcast was produced and edited by Amy Santos with music by Stefan Bode.